0: Amen. Well, excuse me. Well, um, as we've been saying all throughout Colossians, maturing into Jesus' image is not about becoming something that we are not. But as we've seen, maturing into the image of Jesus is about becoming who we are. One does not start the Christian life unholy and then progress into greater and greater amounts of holiness. Rather, one is holy to begin with, and progress is a matter of living into it. And this is simply the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 10 of Colossians says that in him you have been made complete. So at the very outset of our Christian lives, everything pertaining to life in godliness is given to us. It's not earned over time or through moral effort. It's a free gift. One begins holy and simply becomes who they are. Yet, this is true only in Christ. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, the apostle says, chapter 2, verse 6, so walk in him. Now one is righteous Not in themselves, naturally speaking. They are righteous in Christ. His righteousness is received in receiving Him. Therefore, the apostle says, we must continue to walk in Him, to abide in Him as a branch does the vine. So our new selves in Christ begin in holiness, and they end in glory. But our old selves, right, apart from Christ, they begin in corruption and they end in wrath. Verse 10, the apostle says, the new self is being renewed. The new self is becoming evermore what it is, fashioned into the image of Jesus. By contrast, the old self is being corrupted. The one who sows to the flesh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, will reap corruption. And from corruption, evil deeds spring forth, impurity, um, immorality, greed, in verse 5. And then in verse 8, anger, malice, and abusive speech. But from the new man, deeds of love spring forth. Compassion, kindness, humility, verse 12. Forbearance and forgiveness, verse 13. And ultimately, love, in verse 14. And their paths, the old man and the new man, They terminate in opposite ends. The corruption of the old man ends in judgment. Because of these things, the wrath of God will come, verse 6. The terrors will be rooted out of the kingdom and burned. The new man, however, is destined for glory. Verse 4, when Christ is revealed, then you shall be revealed with him in glory. So the path of the one... The old man spirals down into darkness and eventually into destruction. And the path of the other, the new man, is upward into glory, ultimately to sit at the right hand on high. So, one, it doesn't make a gradual transition from the old man to the new man. We don't make a gradual transition from unholiness to holiness, from right, or unrighteousness to righteousness. Rather, the change is decisive. The old man is put to death on the cross, and the new man is raised to life. You have laid aside the old self, chapter 3, verse 9, with its evil practices. You have done this. So now it's not a matter of moving from holiness, unholiness, to holiness, because you are holy. It's a matter of becoming who you are. Chapter 1, verse 22 says, who you are is holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. So now it's a matter, or rather now you are holy, and the scripture says, therefore be holy. It says you are blameless in Christ, therefore be blameless, right? It says you have put on the new self who's being renewed in the image of the one who created him, therefore put on love. You are these things. You are holy. You are beloved. So, here's the important thing that I want us to understand, is that the gospel, it works backward. It starts from the end, right? It begins at the destination. It tells us and it shows us, this is who you will be. And then it demands of us to become that now. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, the gospel says, therefore... Because that's the case, because you will be revealed with him in glory, therefore set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This is who you will be. This is who you are. So be that now. In other words, what is true in heaven is becoming true on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to become on earth, in our lives now, who we already are in heaven with Christ. Thus, we are, in a sense, living backwards. Not from the present into the future, but from the future into the present. Not from earth to heaven, but from heaven to earth. And not from who we are now to who we will be, but from who we will be to who we are now. We're moving backwards. So first importance then, what matters to us immensely, is that we know where we're going. That we know what is destined for us. Because the clearer our vision of that, the firmer our conviction in that end, the more purpose and the more clarity we will have in our lives now. So what is the end? (coughs) What is the direction that we're headed? Well, it's to be one in Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11. Scripture says, You have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all, And in all. So the end is one in which God is creating a new humanity in Christ. Barbarians and Scythians, uh, Jews and Greeks, these old distinctions are all fading away, and the future is one in which Christ will be all and in all. Americans and Russians, white and black, poor and rich, have all put on the same new man who is being renewed in Jesus' image. And so these old fleshly distinctions are progressively erased as the new man is progressively renewed. They all fade into oblivion, and what is left is Christ. He is all in all. Thus, the end (laughs) is one in which all who believe will become one in Christ, right? We all start from these different backgrounds, and we're all moving, however, toward the same destination, where we will be one in Christ, one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. So that's where we're headed. That's the goal. We're all who believe are united in Christ and he is all in all. Therefore, because we are going to be one, we are to be one right now. Look at what the apostle says there in verse 15. See the connection, right? I want you to get this. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Peace, which is spoken about here, the peace of Christ is not incidental. It's not an extraneous aim. We are called to peace. It's fundamental to the redemption that Christ has accomplished. He has reconciled all things to God the Father, chapter 1, verse 20, having made peace through the blood of his cross. We are all going to be one in Christ. It was for peace that Christ died, and therefore, it's for peace that we must strive. It's the summons that is upon us as one body, as the body of Christ. That's where we're headed, and therefore, that's what we're to pursue right now. And so the apostle says that the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts. Now, rule, (coughs) as it's used here, is a sporting term. Um, In the original, it refers to an umpire at the games or someone officiating a match. Hence, the meaning of rule here is closer to something like arbitrate or to settle disagreements. So the peace of Christ that's being talked about is not an interior disposition that we're to cultivate. Rather, the peace of Christ is more like the umpire of our affairs in the church. It rules over us. It officiates over all of our dealings with one another. So in all our lives, in our decision-making in choosing between alternatives, in settling conflicts with one another, what should rule, what should arbitrate over the whole is the peace of Christ. That's the aim. That's what we're trying to accomplish and trying to maintain. So it's to preside over our lives together as a conductor does the orchestra or as a chairman does a meeting. The peace of Christ is to reign over our interpersonal conflicts over our suspicion and our indifference. So we're not called then to having our own way or to proving our own point, but to peace. As the apostle says in Romans 14, 19, so then we pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. So we work backward from peace for peace. There will come a day when Christ will be all in all, And that we will be found in him. Therefore, currently, we are called to let the peace of Christ rule over our congregation. And here, in relation to peace, is where the old and the new selves that we've been talking about enter the picture once again. Because one, the new man makes for peace. And the old man does not. I want you to notice that the practices that characterize the old man as they're listed in our passage are distinctly community-destroying, peace-destroying vices. They are, in verse 5, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And these can be classified as vices of exploitation and abuse. And then again in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. These are vices of strife, and there's a progression. Anger leads to wrath, wrath to malice, and malice bursts forth as slander and abusive speech. Now a community can bear under these things only for so long. If these vices are what characterize our lives eventually, Our church, our body, will be fractured beyond repair. Lust and greed, the the vices (coughs) mentioned in verse 5, these vices press us to act from sheer self-interest and to treat one another as mere tools. A person is valued to the extent that they can be used or exploited, be it for the sake of pleasure or capital gain. When these vices reign, human dignity is degraded and community becomes impossible. And it's even more obvious in that second list, this destructive quality. Abusive speech and slander are like a corrosive acid that's poured upon the bonds that hold us together. They're a poison that corrupts not just the speaker, but the hearer. A community cannot endure this type of speech. Soon respect for others is darkened and all of our dealings with one another are going to be shrouded in suspicion and ill will. The path to reconciliation, the path to peace is buried under a thousand uncharitable and cutting words. Indeed, the quickest way to undermine any community, be it the church or a family or even just the workplace, is to turn loose the tongue. It's to trade in slander and abusive speech. The Proverbs say that a perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer separates intimate friends. To bear false witness of any kind, right, to break that commandment, thou shall not bear false witness is to blacken all that is good, and it's to undermine the things that hold us together. It's to separate intimate friends. So such speech, right, stems from anger. It comes from malice. And we must remember that anger profits nothing. Listen to what James counsels us. Chapter 1, um, verses 19 to 20 of his epistle. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Anger is deceptive. And part of the reason that we feel justified in speaking out against whatever it might be is because anger is deceptive, rather, in that it pretends to achieve something. We think we're getting something done. And whatever it achieves, right, James says, it's not the righteousness of God. Anger produces nothing of value for peace and community. Rather, anger only breeds unrighteousness and division. Under the old man, the man that we put aside, strife and not peace is the rule. And the reason is that because the flesh can produce nothing else. And when we're living in the flesh, there will be no peace. That's what the flesh does. It brings division. It causes strife. It destroys community. Paul asked the Corinthians in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians, he asked them, since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? And to the Galatians... You guys know the passage he lists, the works of the flesh. Galatians 5.20, what are they? Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, discord, and strife. These are calling cards of the flesh. They're proof that the old man is still tolerated. Because wherever he goes, right, wherever he is not consistently being laid aside... And we're not putting to death the members of our earthly body. Wherever the old man goes, controversy, bitterness, and division follow. This is what the flesh does. It divides. But the apostle charges us, verse 8 and 9 of our passage, put them all aside. These things that destroy peace and community, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Again, our former deadness has been laid aside. You've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It is no longer who we are, and if it's no longer who we are, therefore, its practices, these old vices, have no place among us. They don't belong in your life as an individual, and they don't belong in our life as a congregation. Our new lives, rather, must be adorned with the virtues that are appropriate to them, not the corruption of the flesh, because you're no longer in the flesh. You're now in the Spirit. So we must put on now dispositions and habits that make for peace. Disposition and habits that are consistent with the new man. Because the life of the new man that we've been given in Christ has been raised higher than sheer self-interest. The new man has been lifted up to genuine concern for others. So rather than exploiting and dominating others in evil desire and malice, the new man or the new woman serves them in love. Look at what the apostle says now in verses 12 and 13. So, vices of the old man, here are the virtues that make for peace. Here are the virtues that are consistent with our calling as one body. And compassion heads the list. It's an interesting word. It comes from um, the same word in the Greek as intestines or guts. Hence, the King James Version translates compassion as bowels of mercy. Mercy. It denotes that deep seated, visceral response to human suffering, where we're moved seemingly from within our insides. It's a word, in fact, that's often used of Jesus. Seeing a widow whose son had recently died, they were carrying him out of the city as Jesus was coming in. Seeing the widow, the scripture says he felt compassion for her. He was moved by what he saw, and he raised her dead son to life. So putting on compassion, then, means that we clothe ourselves in mercy. We are not to be, in our congregation, hard-hearted with one another. Rather, we're supposed to be affected by each other's suffering, moved by it, And not just emotionally, but move to such an extent that we do something to relieve that suffering. Compassion breaks down the old man's inward, self interested gaze, and what it enables us to do is to see the other person and to enter into their concern. Not to bypass it, not to write it off, but to. Even feel it within ourselves, as the apostle says in Romans 12:15: Rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? Celebrate with them, feel their rejoicing, and rejoice with them, but also weep with those who weep. Enter into that pain. And the next virtue is kindness. And kindness means more than being a considerate and nice person as we might understand it today. It comes from the same word kindness does as grace, charis in the Greek. Kindness then is dealing with others in whatever circumstance in grace. Kindness is dealing with others in grace. And it gives rise, kindness does to another virtue, which is gentleness. Grace makes us kind with one another. And kindness makes us gentle toward one another. And this is in direct contrast to the old man, clothed as he is in evil desire and anger. The old man or the old woman is harsh and heartless. Other people are there to be used or simply in the way. The new self, however, is clothed in compassion and a generosity of spirit. Grace has made the new man kind and well disposed toward all slow to anger, and ready to put on the best construction, ready to put the best construction on things, rather. And therefore, the new man is draped in another virtue, which is patience. So if compassion is showing mercy toward another person's suffering, then patience is mercy shown toward another's faults. Compassion is kindness and gentleness displayed in the face of personal conflict or failure. The new self that we've been given in Christ bears with others. It shows great tolerance toward others. It's quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And of course, undergirding all these virtues is humility. In the ancient world, humility was not a virtue because it was I um, seen as the proper state of the lowborn and slaves. Humility was ill-fitting for anyone with dignity. Yet humility is the chief dignity of the new man. He considers others better than himself. He makes it his duty to serve them. He is displaced as the center of his own life, leaving room now for others. And lastly, all these virtues hold together in love which is the perfect bond of unity. Love, we might say, is the sum of all these virtues. Love is patient. It's kind. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails, 1 Corinthians 13. So here is the new life that we've been called to. And we are to clothe ourselves in it. But we must remember, right, as we try to put on compassion and gentleness and kindness and patience and humility and ultimately love, we must remember that as we put these on, we're not putting on a life that's alien to us, right? You're not an angry man putting on patience. You're not a, uh, a slanderer who's putting on humility, Rather, you're laying aside those things which are truly alien to you. That's not who you are. And what you're putting on is your true identity in Christ. To be loving, to be patient, to be kind, that is who you are. These virtues are the native virtues of the Spirit who dwells within us, the fruits of the Spirit. You're not putting on something foreign, but something true to who you are, becoming who you are. So if the old man and the flesh destroy community, it's quite obvious to see how the new man and the spirit make for community. These virtues bind us together when conflict would threaten to tear us apart. So these evil passions of the flesh are replaced by these good and positive virtues of the spirit. And not just these uh, passions or emotional states, but, but more than that, Because the speech habits of the old man, slander, abusive speech, and lies, these are also laid aside, and a new form of speech takes its place. Look at what, um, again, is said here in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, with all wisdom and teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So rather than... Dragging one another with our words, uh, tearing and cutting down, we are to speak the words of Christ to one another that it might dwell among us. And notice, we don't move from abusive speech toward one another to kind speech toward one another, but from abusive speech to the words of Christ. So our, 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 our dealings with one another, the way we speak to one another, are not to be characterized merely by niceness, but by the gospel, but by the word of Christ. We're not practicing merely um, a positive affirmation, saying nice things about each other, but we're reaffirming to one another the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection, the word of Christ, the gospel as it's set forth in the scriptures. Christ's words are to be present among us in abundance. Now this obviously describes what we're doing here, our Lord's Day service, in which every aspect, the readings, the sermon, the singing, the fellowship, is to be permeated and to be governed by the word. But it also refers to our day-to-day lives with one another. And all we do, with whomever we speak the word of Christ, should be on our lips, And where there is an abundance of his word, then our word or our speech is renewed. When we are speaking the words of Christ to one another, our hearts are lifted with thankfulness and song. And naturally then, abusive speech is the furthest thing from our mouths. We are renewed by what we choose to hear and speak to one another, the true words of Christ. So here then is a picture of a church ruled by the peace of Christ, draped in the virtues of Christ, compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and patience, clothed in the words of Christ, admonishing and singing to one another the word of truth. Here is a picture of a church where Christ is all and in all. And it's the vision of things that we are called to in one body. Therefore, (coughs) as the apostle says, We're to lay aside the old self with its evil practices. Anger, wrath, malice, abusive speech, immorality, impurity, greed. We're laying these aside because we've laid aside the old self and we're to put on the new self who's being renewed in Christ's image. So we live backwards From the future into the present, from heaven to earth, backwards, from peace to conflict, from a day when Christ will be all and in all, to a time now when his name is profaned. And that's where I want to end this and and, and draw our attention. The future is one in which Christ, chapter 1, verse 18, will have the first place in everything because he's not only the firstborn over all creation, he's the firstborn from the dead. Chapter 2, verse 15, he has triumphed over principalities and powers, and he's made a public display of them through his death and resurrection. And this victory is already manifest in heaven, but it's hidden on earth. Christ reigns, but we do not yet see it. And it will be revealed when he returns in glory. And when he does, right, when Christ returns, then the truth will be known. That the man hung upon the cross, mocked and spit upon by his persecutors, that that very same one is the world's true Lord. His rivals will be no more and he will put all enemies under his feet. First Corinthians 15. He will be served not merely as a man, but as the son of God the image of the Father, the eternal word, creator and redeemer. And on that day when he returns, there will be no longer any death, nor mourning, nor crying, Revelation 21. All things will be made new, and Christ will be all in all. And that will be true for every one of us, as it said there in verse 11 of our, of our passage. That will be true for every one of us. Christ will be our all. He will be our glory. He will be our happiness. He will be our peace and our very lives. Even if now we put ourselves and our lives into other things, when he comes in glory, we will see him as he is, as our very life. So if that's the case, right? If your future, if your future is one in which the Lord Jesus Christ will be all and in all, he will be your very life. If that's the case, then, what indeed must we do now? If that's who you're going to be, how should we live in this moment? Look at verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, one day for each one of us, Christ will be all in all. Therefore, what the apostle tells us here is to do all in his name. It speaks to his lordship. Everything we do will be done according to his will and for his honor. And it's supposed to be that way now. It's supposed to be that way now. He will be all, therefore do all in his name. So whatever we do in word or deed, meaning everything is to have that character and spirit. And to be done in his name means to be done representing him, as would be pleasing to him. And so this is ultimately the rule that governs our lives together. And all of our dealings with one another, right? And all of our conflicts and agreements and joys and pains and all the difficulties that come with trying to be a church, this is the rule that's to govern our lives. We are to act toward one another in the name of the Lord. Bearing his mercy and grace and love toward one another. We pursue the things that make for peace. And this way, when we act always in the name of the Lord, peace reigns in our congregation. Rather than slandering you behind our back, I act in the name of the Lord and I speak to you face to face. And we settle our differences. Right And on and on and on, in the various situations, we bear the name of the Lord to one another. So it's fitting then, <laughs> now that as we draw things to a close, um, that we do all, as the verse says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, uh, thanks through him to God the Father. So the bottom line, and thanksgiving runs throughout this whole passage, the bottom line is thanksgiving. And that's what, of course, communion Is. And as we're exhorted um, to put on these virtues and to serve one another in genuine humility and love, we must remember that we've also ourselves been served. That Christ demands nothing from us that He hasn't already done for us. There at the beginning of verse 12, before we are commanded to put on the new man we're reminded once more who we are. It says, So, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved. It's nearly impossible to love one another, to put on the new man, to do what we're being asked to do, without realizing that we are, before God the Father, holy and beloved. That inner well from which we're to draw from would be empty. In fact, there would be nothing to draw from. If we're to love one another, if we are to pursue the things that make for peace, we must know, not just in our minds, but in our hearts, that we are loved by God, that we are indeed beloved of him, that he does indeed care for us. And when that love is poured out in our hearts, when we know that we've been served by God in Christ, then we can serve others. Then we can put on the new man. First John chapter four, verse ten and eleven, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So excuse me, partake this morning remembering what these elements communicate to us. The love of God in the broken body and the poured out blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So receive his love and give thanks to God the Father through him and um, we will celebrate in just a moment. So come forward, please receive the elements of communion. Um, Take them back to your seats. Um, Meditate on the love of God and I'll lead us in just a moment.